Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. I'm sure most, if not all of us are very familiar with this chapter that we just read. If not from the pulpit, then from a wedding ceremony, or I'm sure most of you performing a wedding ceremony or something of that nature. We tend to bring up this passage, this chapter, anytime the concept of love is brought up. And rightfully so, considering that the importance of love is a main emphasis of this chapter. However, there is a very specific reason for why this famous teaching on love is found in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. So for our time this morning, we're going to be taking a look at this chapter and how exactly it fits in the overall context in which it was written. And in so doing, hopefully gain a deeper understanding and appreciation for this beautiful message about love. 1 Corinthians 13 was written, of course, right after 1 Corinthians 12. And so if we go back there to get an idea of the context in which it was written, 1 Corinthians 12 starts off uh, by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. We'll stop there. 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14 contain instructions from Paul to the church at Corinth concerning their use of spiritual gifts, as is evident by this series that we're having over the last lesson, this one, and then the next presentation. And it's right in between these two chapters of instruction that we find our chapter that we're looking at right now. And considering the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is that of spiritual gifts, I believe it'd be useful just to have a quick overview on the use of spiritual gifts and the origin of it in the New Testament. When Jesus came to this world and started His ministry, He began teaching the Word of God. However, the truth that Jesus was teaching was very different than what the Jewish leaders of the day taught. So to confirm that what he taught was in fact the Word of God, Jesus famously went about performing miracles. 
He healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, made the lame walk, fed thousands, calmed storms, raised people from the dead, and so on. However, Jesus did not come down here to stay and to teach on earth for all eternity. So in John chapter 14, we read, uh, we see him telling his disciples that would later become the apostles minus Judas who would be replaced, how exactly his teachings would be able to continue. And after telling the apostles that he would soon leave them, that he was going to prepare a place for them, and that he was the only way to the Father, Philip asks Jesus to show them the Father. And Jesus responds this way, starting in verse 10. He says, Do you not believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves, these works that God is doing through Jesus. Most assuredly, I say to you that he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus, or it's, it's worth noting that this whole conversation that's, be, that's taking place here is in the context, this is when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. This is not a public setting when He's speaking to a large group of people. But rather, this, is, this seems to be Jesus speaking simply to these twelve disciples that would later become the apostles. And Jesus tells them that they can believe what He said if for no other reason than the works that they have seen the Father do through Him. Seems to be talking about the miracles that they had witnessed. But then He also promises the apostles, or the soon-to-be apostles, that they would also perform these same works, or these miracles, after He leaves. However, Jesus also promises to, spend, or to send a helper in the spirit of truth, to be with them during this time. In verse 26 of this chapter, Jesus also says of this Helper, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, so that's who this will be, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2. Jesus has died, risen from the dead, and ascended back to heaven. And after Matthias is chosen to fill the role of the twelfth apostle after Judas' betrayal and death, the twelve apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, and they go out to preach to the, the large crowd gathered at Pentecost. However, the Bible says that there were people from multiple different countries who spoke multiple different languages. And they all heard the Word of God being taught. They all heard what was taught by these twelve in their own language. And they were even hearing this by unlearned men who had clearly never studied a foreign language before. How? Because God through the Holy Spirit gave them this miraculous ability to speak in a tongue or a language that they themselves did not know. Thus allowing them to confirm that what they had taught was from God, and also on the practical side of things, giving them the ability 
to fulfill Jesus' commission to go everywhere and to preach the gospel to everyone. So now that the apostles had these spiritual or these supernatural gifts and were able to receive the word directly from God and confirm the word through these miracles, it was now their responsibility to take the gospel to the whole world. And they did just that using these spiritual gifts for this reason, according to Mark 16.20. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So these signs, these miracles that they were doing, was the purpose of them was to confirm what they were teaching and also giving them the ability to teach since they did not have the written word. However, there's a little bit of a problem with this, and that's that there's only 12 of them, and it's a big world. And so as we read about in Acts 8, when a church would be established, if, uh, if no apostle were there, one would come to this church, and they would lay their hands on Christians there, and thus give Christians at this new congregation these spiritual gifts, and equip them to be able to know the Word of God, confirm the Word of God, and preach the Word of God. The church at Corinth, it says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7, was short in none of these gifts. However, as Brother Marcus talked about, and Brother Caleb will continue to teach, from what we can read in chapters 12 and 14, the brethren at Corinth were having problems with how they were using these spiritual gifts. And Paul, toward the beginning of chapter 12, lists the different spiritual gifts that the Corinthian brethren had. And just like Marcus uh, kind of did it, or showed, uh, the way that he lists them kind of breaks them up into three different categories. We have wisdom and knowledge, or di three different classifications. We have faith, miracles, healings, prophecy, and discerning spirits. And then we have tongues and interpretation of tongues. And these were the gifts that existed, or these are the gifts that the Corinthian brethren had. And Paul goes on to explain how all of these different miraculous abilities should work together for the mutual benefit of the church. However, after this whole chapter of Paul discussing the supernatural abilities that these brethren had, he ends it in a seemingly strange way. He says in the last verse of chapter 12, And yet... I show you a more excellent way. Amongst all of this talk about their ability to do things that could only be dreamed of for most of the people in the earth's history, Paul says that there's still something better, that there's something that these Corinthian brethren were missing, or at the very least forgetting. There's something better, more complete, more excellent than their ability to be used as an instrument of the Holy Spirit to break the laws of the natural world and perform supernatural wonders. So what is this way that Paul is speaking of? The very next verse starts like this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Given the context, Paul is beginning to tell us about this more excellent way than spiritual gifts and begins by mentioning one of the gifts that was, uh, that was prevalent or that was there among the Corinthian brethren. Furthermore, given that the gift of tongues is a main point of emphasis in the following chapter, it appears that the use of this specific gift may have played a large part in the contention that lived in this congregation. So Paul here says that this gift, even if he has the ability to speak in, to in the tongues 
of men. And this tongues is plural. He's not saying if I can take one language among men and speak it. I think we could all agree that it'd be pretty cool if I could come up here and speak French having never studied it before. It'd be, I think it'd be really cool and I think it'd be really uh, amazing. And yet Paul is saying tongues. He's saying even if I have the ability to speak multiple languages, perhaps all languages that exist upon man, but not just man, but also if I can speak of every language known to man and known to heaven. What an incredible ability. What an incredible power. And yet Paul says that even if he can do that, if he lacks love, then this unbelievable gift is reduced to absolutely nothing but a bunch of noise. Paul continues on. And he says, And though I have the whoops. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul once more mentions not just one spiritual gift here that those in Corinth had, but three more gifts. He says that even if he is able to be used as a prophet or as a spokesman for God himself, supernaturally, and if he's able to know and understand literally everything about this world and the world to come, and even if he's also able to have so much supernatural faith that he can break the laws of physics and nature, even if he does all of this, if he lacks love, then all of this amazing ability, all of these are completely and utterly pointless. Because even with all of these gifts, if he has no love within himself, he still amounts to nothing. Now up to this point, Paul has only mentioned four spiritual gifts here in chapter 13. However, this does not necessarily mean that love is only superior to these specific gifts. And there are two reasons why I say this. Number one is because as Brother Mark has taught, the whole point of chapter 12, or at least a large part of it, is the idea that no one gift is better or more important than any other gift. That they all have their own purposes and they all work together. If this is the case, then how could love be superior to some spiritual gifts and be inferior to the others if all spiritual gifts are equal as Paul has just taught in chapter 12? This idea that Paul is saying that love is superior to only these gifts, these specific gifts, doesn't seem to make sense considering this context. Furthermore, number two, we've talked about these three classifications of these, uh, in which Paul organizes these gifts by saying one of a different kind or one of the same kind in chapter 12. And if we look at the four gifts that he mentions here in chapter 13, at the beginning, or at least of chapter 13, tongues, faith, prophecy, knowledge, the bolding may not be strong enough, but although he doubles up on the second classification of these gifts, he's hitting each of these different classes. This combined with the context that we considered leads to the conclusion that Paul is using a synecdoche, a figure of speech, using a part to represent the whole, and thus saying that all spiritual gifts are rendered useless and do no good if the one who has them lacks love. Paul then takes it further in verse 3, saying, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, 
And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul is saying that if he donates everything he has to the poor, and if he, if he gives to others to the point of making himself destitute, and he even gives his life and is burned at the stake, presumably for the cause of Christ, he still profits nothing if he does not have love. Now these are not things that are ever mentioned as spiritual gifts. Giving to others and giving your life are never mentioned to be spiritual gifts, but rather their works, their acts of service, their acts of obedience. Really, more than anything, these should be acts, inherently be acts of love. Why would you give to others what is yours except out of love? Why would you give your life for God or for anyone else, for that matter, if not out of love? This seems simple. Of course, we should take care of each other and we should watch out for each other because we love each other. Of course, we should give all that we can in service to God because we love Him for giving us all that He has and for being all that He is. This seems like it should be easy. And yet too often, it's too easy to do the right things for the wrong reasons. It's too easy to treat others well and to sacrifice for God, not out of love, but out of what? Self-righteousness? Arrogance? The need for applause or praise? Or maybe simply because that's what I'm supposed to do. Paul is saying that any good you do, any act of service toward God or man is pointless and profits absolutely nothing if not done out of love, if done with the wrong intent. Paul is saying this exact same thing about spiritual gifts. We won't bring up what their intentions might have been, but the Corinthian brethren seemed to be fighting over these spiritual gifts that were then rendered pointless and unprofitable because they had lost their love for each other. That should have been the driving motivator to use these gifts. In doing this, the Corinthian brethren had degraded these miraculous works of the Holy Spirit that were being done through them as useless. So to help them with this, Paul reminds them of some characteristics that they needed to have. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its, its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul reminds the Corinthian brethren of these attributes of love and how these mindsets and choices need to be the driving motivator in all that they do, but especially here, talking about their use of spiritual gifts. They need to be done out of love. Paul reminds them, if I can summarize this, that love desires what is best for others, hopes for what is best for others, expects the best out of others, and rejoices over the success of others. This does not mean that love is naive or blind. As I like how Gareth Reese says in his commentary. He says, we don't have to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5 in order to love. 
This does not say that we have to suspend our beliefs in order to love others whenever it says that love believes all things. However, this does teach that love isn't cynical. And it doesn't expect the worst out of our brethren. It doesn't look for opportunities to get mad and to fight with each other. It doesn't look for uh, one brother failing so that you can succeed. But rather, love gives the benefit of the doubt and seeks to help everyone and seeks to serve. Love never fails. While the initial reaction to this may be to take this as love can conquer anything, while this, this might be a true statement, it appears that this is not what Paul intended when he wrote this. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Gareth 3 says that the Greek word for fails here has two technical meanings. First, he says, it may mean is never hissed off a stage like a bad actor would be. The implication is that some of the, Corinthian, the Corinthians' behavior as they exercised their gifts was the kind where others wanted to hiss them off a stage. That's one possible explanation that Reese that uh, gives here. But the other one, he says, it may mean falls away, such as the petals of a withered flower or stars falling in, in the heavens to collapse or to suffer ruin. To see which of these potential meanings is perhaps more likely, let's look at the entirety of verse 8. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. There's a contrast being made here between love and prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. And since we know for sure that the second half of this contrast, the prophecies, tongues, and knowledge, is talking about these things ceasing, as it says with tongues, or vanishing away with knowledge. It's talking about these things ending. Uh, it stands to reason that the contrast is between the temporary nature of prophecies, tongues, and knowledge compared to the permanence of love. So while love is something that will always be necessary and will never pass away, prophecies, tongues, and knowledge are all temporary. Now there are some who would contend that these prophecies, tongues, and knowledge uh, that Paul's talking about will, uh, and the ones that Paul's saying will pass away is talking about human or earthly prophecies, tongues, and knowledge is not referring at all to spiritual gifts. However, to draw this conclusion, one must completely and utterly neglect or ignore the context in which this was written. Not long before this was written, Paul says at the beginning of chapter 12 that he is writing to them about spiritual gifts. Lists these three things as spiritual gifts and then continues to write about spiritual gifts through chapter 14. Furthermore, not only are these three listed as spiritual gifts, if we can go back to our categories of spiritual gifts that Paul gives in chapter 12, these three things take one from each category and uh, repre perfectly represent each of these types of spiritual gifts. It appears that not only must this be talking about spiritual gifts, but Paul is even using these three gifts 
as a synecdoche, like he did at the beginning of the chapter. So Paul is saying that all spiritual gifts will end. They will cease. They will vanish away. They will stop. And then he says when they will stop. He says, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Considering the context of spiritual gifts, this knowledge this, and this prophesying must still be a reference to spiritual gifts. Even though tongues are not mentioned here in verse 9, this is, or remember Paul is talking about part of them to refer to all of them. And so he's still talking about all spiritual gifts. We especially know this is the case because the previous verse was talking about how spiritual gifts will vanish away. And here it's once again talking about knowledge and prophecy being, in, being that which is in part and passing away or being done away with. But here it says that that won't happen until that which is perfect has come. So what is that which is perfect that Paul speaks of that must come to usher out the age of spiritual gifts? The claim that, um, or many will claim that this is speaking of the second coming of Jesus or talking about heaven. However, there are a few problems with this interpretation. First, it doesn't fit the context. Uh, it, it doesn't fit the context of these three chapters talking about spiritual gifts. Um, or it doesn't fit the context as neither Jesus' second coming nor heaven is remotely mentioned in these three chapters about spiritual gifts. Second, if that which is perfect is the second coming of Jesus or is heaven, then it wouldn't fulfill the point of this chapter, which is to deter the Corinthian brethren from arguing over spiritual gifts. What purpose would there be for Paul to say, or to write to the Corinthians, saying, don't argue over spiritual gifts because there's a more excellent way than that. It's love. Love is more important because it's permanent, whereas spiritual gifts are temporary and will be done away with when you go to heaven or when Jesus comes back. It doesn't seem to make any sense and definitely doesn't seem like it has any reasoning that would deter the Corinthians from fighting over spiritual gifts as it would actually be confirming that they would have to deal with this issue not only their, the rest of their lives but mankind was going to have to deal with this issue the entirety of their time on the earth until Jesus comes back. Never mind the fact that it makes the contrast between the permanence of love and the temporary nature of spiritual gifts it makes that context or that contrast make very little sense. Third, the word perfect that's used here does not mean the same thing as when we say perfect today. We mean flawless or inerrant. Uh, rather, it means complete or mature. So there's a contrast being made between supernaturally or receiving knowledge and the ability to prophesy um, and something that is the same thing only in its most complete and mature state. Does this fit the second coming of Jesus or heaven? Are either of these two things a mature or complete version of receiving the will of God or being a spokesman for God? Of course not. Neither fits this wording. 
So if that which is perfect is it, or mature or complete isn't Jesus' second coming and it isn't heaven, then what is it? Well, let's remember what that which is in part is, since that is clearly stated. Uh, if that which is in part, or that which is incomplete, that which is immature, is occasionally having parts of the will of God supernaturally revealed and proven with the ability to preach, it would then make sense that the mature and complete version of this would be always having the entirety of the will of God supernaturally revealed and proven and having the ability to preach it. Paul alludes to this in the following verses of 1 Corinthians 13. He says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. The city of Corinth was known for making some of the finest mirrors of the day around this time. However, mirrors were a little different back then compared to now as they were made out of bronze. And so it was less like what we think of as looking in a mirror and more like what we would think of when we try to see our reflection maybe in the bottle of a or the bottom of a can of soda or a tin can it will give you a basic idea and if you looked closely you could see some details but you couldn't see every detail or exactly how everything works together all at once paul compares this to his knowledge of God. He compares this to the, under, the level of understanding that they had during the time of spiritual gifts. However, he speaks of a time when this knowledge of God and the will of God will become as clear as seeing someone face to face instead of that poor reflection that they had in a bronze mirror. And he says that when this happen, happens, they will be able to know the will of God just as well as God knows them. So does all of this fit with the idea that spiritual gifts would pass away when the entire will of God is forever revealed to mankind? I believe so. In fact, it appears that this is what Jesus had in mind all along. We looked at chapter 14 earlier, but this conversation continues on for a while longer. And it says ultimately, or Jesus says ultimately in John 16, 13, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. The reason for these spiritual gifts that Jesus was promising the apostles and that the early church experienced was to guide mankind to the entirety of God's will for us. So when that was fully revealed, the need for spiritual gifts would be gone. Jude, Jude writes in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, 
and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have everything that we need to know. God has completely revealed His entire will for mankind. In fact, it, this was revealed a long time ago. This was achieved a long time ago. Today and for a very long time, we've been able to know God's revealed will through the study of this book. Therefore, we have no reason, haven't had any reason for a long time, to need any miraculous revelation from God or any miraculous ability to prophesy. And we definitely don't need any, or don't have any reason to need to speak in tongues or use any other spiritual gift to confirm what we say. Since, what, since we have everything that we need right here in a book that speaks for, proves, and defends itself. Paul ends this chapter by saying, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. May we always remember these words from Paul. And love one another as He has taught us throughout this chapter. There are so many things in this world that are just as temporary, if not more so, than the spiritual gifts that was causing this contention in Corinth. And may we never let the temporary things of this life distract us into forgetting the permanence of the love that we are to have for each other.